I, I mean, a lot of folks are making pledges for 2050. I think that's way too long, and I think we're going to get there oh, really? faster. Energy is an integral part of everyone's life and business, but few people outside of the sector really spend much time thinking about it. We just sort of take it for granted. However, there's been heightened concern about the environmental impact of carbon gases, prompting governments and companies to focus on reducing CO2 emissions. Even for those people for whom climate change has not been top of mind, the sudden rise in energy prices in the past month or so has gotten their attention. The solution to both cleaning up the environment and potentially lowering energy prices is said to be renewable energy. But can we really harness enough wind, solar, hydro, and other green energy sources to replace fossil fuels? And if so, what will it take to achieve this? Hi, I'm Jane Singer, and thank you for joining me today. It's always great to have you here as part of our global community, and I appreciate your taking the time out of your day to join our listeners who now span 93 countries. I hope that you're enjoying learning from the many truly outstanding people who are guests on the show, and that like me, you always gain some new insights, understanding, maybe even some inspiration. If you want to truly understand what's happening with renewable energy from an energy industry point of view, then the person to speak with is Carolina Torres. She has more than 29 years of global experience in the oil and gas industry, from roles that spanned exploration, field development, finance, drilling, digital transformation, and digital product development. Currently, Carolina is the Executive Director of Energy Industry Transformation at Cognite, where she helps industrial companies optimize their existing energy production, move towards more sustainable energy solutions, and future-proof their digital and data systems for a carbon-neutral future. In this episode of A Seat at the Table, Carolina will talk about what she sees as the biggest barrier to renewables going mass market, a key difference between fossil fuels and renewable energy, why we need to take a totally new approach to how we analyze data, and what might be coming next for the energy sector. Before we get started, if you want an easy-to-read, straightforward view of key shifts and developments in Asian supply chains without reading through endless amounts of bloated text and overly complex graphs, if you're tired of wasting time trying to piece together the overwhelming amount of information online or in other reports, and you just want someone to make it simple, then the current situation is exactly what you're looking for. These concise roundups of key news and information help international sourcing execs get only the news you really need, summarized so that you can reclaim your time and your inbox. For immediate access, go to thecurrentsituation.net. That's thecurrentsituation.net. Now, let's sit down with Carolina and get an insider's view on renewable energy. I thank you so much for joining me again on a seat at the table. As we were discussing before, everyone is committed to a greater or lesser extent of switching to renewable energy, to cleaner energy. However, the big challenge, I think, for businesses and for governments is how do we do this while still being able to, in the transition period, provide commercial and industrial and consumers, right, with a stable, affordable supply of energy. I mean, how do you see that happening? Uh, it's going to be a challenge. But if you think back historically, when those kinds of things have happened, particularly in Europe, it used to be a coal energy. Everyone had coal. All the infrastructure was about coal. There was all kinds of businesses associated with coal to warm people's houses, for example, or to run factories. 
And then if you think about transportation, I mean, there was an entire sort of economy around horses and horse-drawn carriages and stabling and rental of horses. And, you know, everything was, you know, geared up to do that. And yet in a very short period of time, if you think about the example of transportation using horses and then transitioning to cars, you know, it was really a matter of the late 1800s, 1890s, when there was a first idea of a car and then the first prototype of a car in the early 1900s. And then by 1920, cars were everywhere and horses weren't. So it is possible these huge transitions happen in the world and they happen organically and naturally because the alternative, the new thing is better than the old thing. I don't think that this is like an unprecedented change in the world. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And it's something that we tend to overlook, right? We're only looking at the problem on the table that we face, not how we overcame challenges in the past. Still, as we're trying to very rapidly shut down fossil fuels and replace it with what at the moment is relatively unstable supply and not sufficient supply of renewables, what are you seeing on the energy side that's being done to make that transition? I mean, what kind of actions are being taken? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I think the Europeans are way, way ahead of the U.S. in this space. There have been incidences, for for example, in the U.K., the U.K. has run 100% on non-hydrocarbon energy for periods of time, for a day or two. So it's not stable, as you said, and it's not like, hey, we've proven that we can do a whole year without hydrocarbon. But the fact that it's possible for an entire country to pretty much run on renewable fuels or non-fossil fuels, even for a day or two, is proof that it's possible. So there's nothing, I think, intrinsically impossible about doing it. It's just a matter of having enough and having the technology and having the infrastructure available to make it happen. And that is, again, all about policy. And it's about incentivizing companies to do the right thing and creating a market and making it possible. That's it. Right. So you think that part of it is not enough supply, but part of the lack of supply is insufficient demand, particularly from companies? It's really hard for us to give up a good thing. You know, (laughs) people have made a lot of money on fossil fuel-based energy. Right. A lot of people have made a lot of money. And I'm not just talking about oil and gas companies, but, right. you know, shipping, transportation, pipelines, gas stations, AM, PM, mini marts, right. everything that is all the infrastructure that's associated with it. And even the general public, it's just, it's a very convenient and easy thing. You just, you run out of gas, you pull into a gas station, you fill up, you go and you get, you know, your Doritos and your Coke. And it's all habits that we have formed around this fossil fuel-based way of living. It's just hard to change habits. And I think as a planet, we have a fossil fuel habit, so we have to get a new habit. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very interesting way to frame it. And I don't, I've not heard anybody look at it from that point of view. I think you're right. Habits are difficult to break. So, I mean, it's really the matter of building a better mousetrap. It's right. a matter of, you know, to change from the old thing, to the new thing has to be better. It has to fulfill some need for people. And I think it it is difficult because clean energy 
to the consumer, I don't know if it makes that much difference. I mean, I personally drive a Prius. In some ways, it is a benefit to me because electric cars require a lot less maintenance. Right. They're less hassle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's wonderful to not have to fill my gas tank. I come home, I plug it in, I run around, do my thing. When I was working at BP, they had charging stations there. So I didn't even have to pay for any of it. I would go to work, I'd park my car there all day and it'd be filled, you know, with juice. So Mm. (laughs) it was totally free for me to drive my car and there was very low maintenance. So it it is a better mousetrap. It's just going to take a while for people to figure it out. And I think they are figuring it out. If you look at the sales of electric vehicles that, you know, it's a huge upswing. (laughs) I mean, Ford F-150s are going to be electric, hundred percent electric now. I mean, it's getting there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that we have definitely seen a surge in consumer interest in electric vehicles and and on the commercial side as well, more trucks and delivery vans, everything is moving to electric. And I think it's interesting that you pointed to when you had worked for BP before, which is traditionally a fossil fuel type of a company, that they did have electric charging stations. How are you seeing renewables coming in for companies that are now, I suppose, facing a big dilemma if your whole business has been on fossil fuels and and related uh, kind of energy? How are they adapting? I can speak to my experience with BP and BP made in in 2021 made an announcement or I think it was 2020 actually made an announcement that they were going to completely change their strategy they they rolled out what they called reimagine energy and reinvent BP and it was really about you know they spent 5 years on the strategy of how are they going to transition it was a lot of effort and I was peripherally involved in some of that strategic thinking when I was there, because I was part of the digital transformation. So I led the subsurface and wells digital transformation globally for BP at that time. And I think that there was a recognition that it was adapt or die, evolve or die. And I think most European companies are a little bit ahead of the American companies in that space, because again, the incentives were there, the policy was there. And I think they just saw the handwriting on the wall. They were like, okay, well, we can keep doing this thing that we've been doing, but we're going to get left behind and we're going to lose market share very slowly over time. And we're going to basically lose our business. The only way to stay alive is to adapt and change to this new reality. And different companies are doing it in different ways. A lot of the you know, oil majors don't necessarily have the technology or the know-how around wind and solar. And so what they've been doing is either investing in joint ventures. So they have a venturing arm or you know, some money that they've socked away to invest in new technology. And they've been um, supporting in a venturing way with new companies, or they've been buying or partnering with folks. And um, that's certainly been BP's policy. They've partnered with companies around EV charging. They've got a huge EV charging grid in the UK, and I think they're expanding that around Houston now. They're looking at partnering with um, cities and towns and really thinking about energy in a really different way. It's not a very simple, linear fossil fuel, you know, we extract it. We transport it by pipeline, we distribute it in gas stations, and a consumer buys it. It's becoming much more of a collaborative, joint venturing, partnering kind of solution. It's making deals with companies like Uber and the city of Houston 
and ChargePoint, or, you know, I'm just using some off the top of my head examples, but right. let's like form this, co- this coalition to bring a electric vehicle solution to the city of Houston. So that is a really, really different model than the historical, you know, linear supply chain kind of solution. Yeah, that is. That's really, like you said, it's a it's a massive way of reimagining the whole the entire way that we're we're looking at energy. Yeah, and I really do think we have to reimagine it. It's not going to be single source fossil fuels companies that supply, companies that transport, and companies that distribute, and then consumers, which is a very linear thing. It's not going to be that. It's not going to be that way anymore. It's going to have to be a lot more collaborative a lot more partnering, a lot more coming up with really clever solutions for things. And it's going to be multi-source. Energy is not going to come, you know, only from wind or from solar or gas or hydrogen. It's it's going to have to be quite mixed. Yeah, fossil fuels will still play a role, but it would play a lesser role. I think so. I think that there's some things that'll be re- quite niche, you know, that will will still require some hydrocarbon, but it'll be small. So when you're looking at all the different developments around renewable energy, around clean energy, there's there's wind and solar and, and hydro and, and so many different opportunities. But at the moment, nuclear. what do you feel? Yes, nuclear also. What do you feel looks like the most promising in terms of being able to provide that stable and affordable supply? I I don't think that there's going to be a single solution. I think that what we're going to have to figure out is how do we take multiple sources and create stability out of having those multiple uh, solutions in place. So it's almost like you have to think about energy provision is like a hub. Right. And then there'll be multiple sources coming in. And it's really important to get that hub to work right. Yeah. And it's about grid stabilization and, and all of that. And that's where the company that I work for now, Cognite, is trying to create a place there because it is going to require data operations in a way that we haven't ever had to do before because of how um, complex it's going to be and how you're going to have to do the, your optimization. Yeah, I think that's really an interesting point. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what Cognite does. So Cognite is a company that contextualizes data. It takes data from multiple sources and it brings it in and it creates a a relationship map around all those different datas so that you can then create algorithms, machine learning, AI on top of that to manage something, to, to manage the data, to gain insights, to optimize and to basically make predictions, those kinds of things. So it's a data operations platform is the main product that we sell. We do also have some applications that will take that data and and do predictions or analysis on it. But for the most part, our main goal is to help people, companies, industrial companies, manage their data and get insight and value out of it. I think that's really important because... Everyone right now is talking about digital transformation. So I suppose what you're doing at Cognite is sort of tying the energy sector into this digital transformation. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the the early days of digital transformation, and I was certainly guilty of this when I first started as um, head of digital transformation for subsurface and wells at BP, everybody was thinking about 
tools, applications. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, okay, we want to build this widget that, you know, does this or helps us make this decision or whatever. And it was very much a bunch of different point sources, point solutions and pilots that we ran. And we basically spent a lot of time and effort and didn't get very far because once you build, you know, some little application that helps you make a decision or look at something a little bit different, then you also have to maintain it as new data comes in. And that became overly burdensome. It was really difficult to like maintain these solutions going forward. And it was also very difficult to scale them across. So we would create this little application that would do this thing. And then we try to scale it across you know, our 17 different assets across BP and each one had to be custom built because everything was slightly different and the data was slightly different and it became not, not scalable. And so what it it took me at least 18 months, I was kind of slow on the uptake. I was kept on trying to do these little solutions. And then I realized, no, no, actually we have to have a data platform. We have to develop the infrastructure, the framework underneath to get all of the data to be operational so that there's a pipeline of data coming in from all the different sources, and then it becomes available for all the applications to work on top of. And once I kind of that tweak to that, it became much more possible to do a solution and to do a solution that was scalable across the entire business. And, and I think in manufacturing, that's happening the same way. Somebody will figure out, okay, here's how we can optimize this line in this factory. And then they try to apply that same solution to all the different lines in the factory or to 17 different factories, and it doesn't work. So right. you have to build the foundation first. You just have to. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And like you said, sometimes you have to sort of start from a clean slate rather than trying to take what you've always done and modify it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think it's very interesting what you've developed at uh, Cognite and you're doing this on a global scale or are you focusing mainly on Europe? On a global scale, we have, we have offices in, in Japan. We have offices in the U S in Austin is our, our biggest second office is in Austin. So we've got about 650 employees globally. We have about 60 in the U.S. Most of the folks are based in Oslo, but they support businesses across the globe from there. And then we also have folks in Latin America. Wow. Exciting. So what do you think is the next big thing for the energy industry? What should we be looking at? What should we be watching? I think that there's quite a lot of efficiency and greenhouse gas emission reduction gains to be made um, on old business. So, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, in my mind, I think about old energy, which is fossil fuel energy and new energy. So right. we talked a bit about new energy and how some companies are starting to invest in that and, and move to that. Uh, I, I think that there's also quite a bit of investment that could happen in the old energy world to make it more efficient and less and to reduce the carbon footprint as we transition. And the thing about it is that I, I think historically companies have looked at it, have looked at any investment in carbon footprint reduction as like an operating cost, right? right. They look at they don't look at it as um, they look at it as a sink. Mm. Uh, for money, as opposed to looking at it as an opportunity. Because what we've found is that generally any investment that folks make in reducing their carbon emissions 
also translates to efficiency and reduction ultimately in cost. So I, I think that companies are starting to think about it a little bit differently. Rather than looking at it as a drain on their resources, they're looking at it as a potential opportunity to reduce their costs and gain efficiency. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, especially nowadays when there is a lot of pressure on efficiency and a lot of pressure on companies to be able to be more agile, to be able to be more adaptable. So it ties in with that total sort of reevaluating your the way you're operating your business, so to speak. And I think if you if you think about it, I, I mean, I'm not sure about the in the manufacturing sector, but in the energy sector, it used to be that your competition, if you're a company, an oil and gas company, your competition was other oil and gas companies, and everybody was operating under the same constraints in terms of the cost to find hard hydrocarbons. Exploration is, is not a super fun game if you're a better. I mean, one in 10 <laughs> is a discovery, right? So you spend millions and millions and millions of dollars and years before you make your discovery. And then it takes you anywhere from seven to 15 years to actually, from discovery to first oil, you know, you have to build this massive facility potentially offshore. You have to, you know, do all the permitting and regulations and, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to get oil out of the ground. Mm. And it's a massive investment. You're just pouring money into the ground before you even, you know, it might be 10 years before you see not, not even a profit, just first your first drop of oil. And wow. in between all of that time, oil prices are going up and down, up and down, up and down. And so you're, you know, the value of your investment is also going up and down, up and down, up and down. Okay, everybody was playing under the same rules, and that's great. Now you're competing with solar farms and wind farms. Those you typically cost maybe, I don't know, 5% of what it costs to come up with to create an oil and gas facility. And they can deliver one in maybe two or three years. Wow. So that's your competition now. Very difficult. So you have to get much, much better. Now, it's great. Oil and gas is very high profit margin. And solar and wind is very low profit margin. But just that timing aspect of it, right. um, you know, you can't afford to have that high profit margin allow you to just take forever to drill a well or mm. not worry about the, the efficiency. It's almost like you have to start thinking like you're a low profit margin business you know, to deliver oil and gas. So it is a huge mindset shift that's required from oil and gas operators in terms of how they operate. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is a total game changer. Now, just one last question, and that would be, in your opinion, given where we are right now with our capacity, right, for renewables, and I'm sure there's been some kind of calculations going forward for the development of, of supply. Roughly, how long do you think it would take for us to get to a point where renewables would be the dominant source of energy? I, I mean, a lot of folks are making pledges for 2050. I think that's way too long. And I think we're going to get there oh, really? faster. Uh, if you look, yeah, because if you look at our predictions around what the share of the energy market alternatives would be, if you looked at that five years ago, what was being predicted, it's a lot higher than that. In other words, the the ramp up, the hockey stick shape 
is is going to happen. And I think more and more we're going to be incentivized and policy is going to be in place to make that happen. So I'm very, I'm positive about it. I think that it's going to happen faster. Now, is it going to happen by 2030? Some companies are being very gung-ho and saying 2030. <laughs> wow. I, I don't think, I don't think so, but I, mm. I don't think it's going to take to 2050. Right. Right. So somewhere in between, we'd be looking yeah. at a timeline in order to really roll out renewables such that it surpasses or at least is on par uh, with fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just a switch from fossil fuel to other energies. I think human behavior is going to change too. So I, I do think that it, it's not just about switching to a different fuel. It's about different behaviors and different, you know, people are going to really start thinking about things in a different way. That's going to benefit everyone. Right. So even consumers are going to get into the, the game. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we can certainly see how much traction has been gained over the years in industry for this. And part of it's been pressure from governments, from NGOs, but a lot of it has been, as you pointed to earlier, that they're starting to realize how this can, can contribute to efficiency and savings and ultimately, obviously, profitability. So when it gets to that point, then then you get more buy-in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Carolina, thank you so much for joining us today. I have learned so much from you in a short time. Incredible. <laughs> I, I, I thank you so much for sharing a wealth of knowledge, really. It, and it's very exciting to hear these kind of developments and achievements on the energy side. Very lovely to talk to you again, Jane. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you're feeling overwhelmed by the amount of industry information being dumped onto your desk or into your inbox, then take a look at the current situation where supply chain execs get only the news they really need summarized so that they can reclaim their time and their inboxes. You can learn more at thecurrentsituation.net. That's thecurrentsituation.net. Before you go, don't forget to check the Seat at the Table's website. You'll find all of the previous podcast episodes, other useful information, as well as how to contact us. You can find it at seatpodcast.net or in the show notes. That's all for now. I'm Jane Singer, and I'll see you in the next podcast episode.